Well, good evening, church. How are you guys doing? You guys doing good? Awesome. Well, it's awesome to be in the house of the Lord, and I'm glad to be up here. It's an honor to be uh, bringing the word for you guys tonight. And so if you would go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. And as I was trying to figure out what I was going to share with you guys, I started to think about the ways that the Lord's just moved in my own life and some of the, the lessons that I've learned along the way. And he really brought me down to one central thing that I think has probably, my, has probably impacted my walk more than anything else. Um, and I think this really changed uh, the way that I view God, the way that I worship him. And this had a really profound impact um, just in my adoration of who the Lord is and, and in my walk as a believer. And so I'm hoping to bring that to you guys tonight. And we're going to be looking at a, probably a familiar passage for a lot of you guys. We're looking at... Uh, the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus' encounter with both of them. But before we get too much into that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at the word together. Father, we just thank you for this evening, God. Thank you that we can come here and that we can uh, hear your voice, that we can hear your words. And so, God, I just pray that you would be here with us, that your spirit would fall in this place. Your word says that we're two or more gathered. God, you're there with us. And so, God, we invite your spirit to speak to us. God, I just pray that I would be your mouthpiece tonight and nothing more. God, that it wouldn't be my words, but that it would be your heart and your words conveyed to us. And so, God, would you be here? God, would you leave us with a greater understanding of who you are and that we would all walk away blessed and just with a heart of worship, God, leaving in awe of who you are. And so we love you. We give you this time, yes, that you'd speak to us. And God, would you nourish us with your word. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. All right, so as I said, Luke chapter 10, we're going to be starting in verse 38. And he says, Now it happened, as they went, that a certain, or that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So this village that he's talking about is uh, the village of Bethany, and this is a few miles east of Jerusalem. And this is also where Jesus would spend his last week on earth. And now we're going into Martha's house, and she is uh, obviously the owner of the home. And likely as the story progresses, it seems to indicate that she is also the older of the two sisters. And so they stay at her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, Mary is actually mentioned a couple other times throughout the scriptures. Uh, in addition to this time, there's two other times that we hear about her. Uh, we hear about her obviously once here in Luke 10, and then as, as well in John 11:39, and then also in John 12:3. And it's interesting that each time she's found in the same position where she is at the Lord's feet, that she's constantly at his feet, listening to him and hearing his voice, uh, resting in his presence, enjoying his company, really basking in his love. And so she's at the feet of Jesus. But then there was Martha. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So we see that Martha, on the other hand, is busy being hospitable. She's running around. She's likely preparing a meal for Jesus and the disciples. And so she's um, really just trying to serve the Lord and to serve the disciples. But what's happened is, is that she's grown distracted. I don't know if you've had uh, that happen where you kind of get caught up in doing things for people that you kind of forget that they're there in the first place. So it kind of defeats the purpose while you're even doing it. Anybody else done that before? Maybe you're like cooking dinner for them, but then you forget they're in the room. And so this is kind of what's happened here 
with Martha is that she, she's busy, she's serving, she's actually doing good things. It's not like she's doing anything wrong, but she's grown distracted. She's missed the fact that the Lord is actually there in her home. And then she approaches him and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So she walks up to the Lord, and at this point, she's kind of irritated because she feels like she's been abandoned to do all this work. And so she obviously sees Mary sitting there, Jesus' feet, and going, she's like, this slacker. She's just sitting there doing nothing. I'm over here, likely cleaning the house, and maybe preparing a meal, and doing all these wonderful things for the Lord. It's like, why isn't she helping me? She's getting all discontented with what's going on. And then she says to the Lord, therefore, tell her to help me. So she's so upset about this whole thing. She's like, man, tell, tell, Martha to get, or tell Mary to get up and to help me with all this work. It's like there's, there's more than enough work for both of us to do. And basically she's demanding of the Lord that, you know, he tell her to go work. But I find Jesus' response kind of interesting. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things. He says, you're, you're all worked up about all this other stuff. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. He says, Martha, you're, you're, you're concerned about doing all this work that, honestly, I didn't even ask you to do. In fact, I, honestly, I don't even need the, the meal that you're preparing. I, I don't need any of that. See, what I, what I need is your heart. I need your attention. That's what I need. I need your worship. And so he said, I'm not going to take that from Mary. I'm not going to pull her out of this state of worship and resting and, and spending time with me to, to go do work that, honestly, I didn't even tell you to do. Now, once again, there's nothing wrong with being hospitable. But what happened is that she forgot who was actually in her house. He says, Mary has chosen the better part. She's choosing to, to sit at my feet and to worship rather than to simply just be busy. And he says, I'm not going to take that away from her. I mean, ultimately, that's actually what's going to last into eternity is our worship of who God is. You realize that's what we're going to do in eternity is we're going to worship him and spend time with him and spend time in his grace and his goodness. And so we see two characters. We have Martha, and she's likely what we would probably call a, a busybody, or maybe even a, a perfectionist. And there's nothing wrong with that. She's, she's out and about, she's being hospitable, she's serving the Lord, she's doing these wonderful things, but she's distracted. And then we have Mary, who's not necessarily serving, but she's worshiping. And I want to point something out. The Lord's not criticizing the fact that Martha is busy that she's being hospitable, that she's serving him. In fact, there's, there's a place for that. But he says there's one thing that is needed, and that is that you worship me, that you spend time with me, that you're not distracted. And so we see that Martha is caught up in all these other things, but she's got the supreme purpose of why she even exists, and that is the fact that she is made to worship God. You realize that we're all called to be worshipers? That's the way that God created us. He created us to be worshipers. And whether we like it or not, we're all going to worship something. It's just in our nature. It's just a matter of who or what. 
And what's happened is, is that Martha has gotten so caught up in serving, so caught up in doing that she has actually made worshiping, or she has actually made serving her God rather than Jesus. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with serving, but she missed the point of the service. See, she was busy. She was caught in performing rather than worshiping. And I think this is something that we can all be prone to. That we can take our walk, which originally starts out as God getting a hold of our hearts and changing us and revealing his goodness and his grace to us. And it's this work of the spirit. And then we can make it about works. We can make it about service. We can make it about making sure that we perform all of our priestly duties as Nacho Libre so elegantly puts it. See, we can get so caught up in performing that we actually miss why we even came to the Lord in the first place. And that is what happened here with Martha. Now, oftentimes what happens is, though, is that we try to justify this performance or this perfectionism by saying, well, you know, we just have to be excellent in everything that we do for the Lord. And honestly, I would actually agree with you. That's very true. We do need to be excellent in what we do for the Lord. But the problem is, is that perfectionism, performance, and excellence are not synonyms, as we so often call them. See, perfectionism is actually, a perf- is actually a form of legalism. It's looking to something other than God to be right with God. And that's what performance-based relationship with the Lord turns into. It boils our, actually our walk down to nothing more than an employee-employer relationship, doesn't it? And that's exactly what has happened here with Martha. See, excellence is a job well done unto the Lord. The other... Legalism, performance, perfectionism is making sure that we perform so the Lord will approve of us and love us. See, here's the heart of the performance trap, and that's what I want to call this. This is what I've titled tonight's message, is that it's the perils of performance. Is that we can get caught up in the performance and forget how we're actually saved in the first place, which is by grace. It's not by works. See, the heart of the performance trap is to first do what Martha does and she sets an unrealistic standard of herself. I mean, she was preparing a meal that Jesus actually says he didn't even need. You realize that? But she felt, well, I need to make sure that I serve the Lord. I need to make sure that I, you know, perform. And yet that's actually not even what the Lord wanted of her. It's not that she did anything wrong. But that's not what he wanted at that time. See, what happens is, is we end up like Martha and we expect ourselves to be perfect in order to receive the Lord's approval. Another thing that happens is that we then take on burdens and tasks that Jesus has not called us to do. That we make this generalization, basically, so long as I'm serving, then God's pleased with that. But maybe what we're actually doing isn't what God wants us to do. You know, one of the most valuable lessons that I've had to learn in the, the time that I've been doing ministry is actually learning when to say no. Because there's a lot of needs out there, aren't there? There's a lot of things that we can look to and be like, man, it's like, oh, I need to help these people, I need to help these people, I need to help these people. And then before you know it, I mean, you're like butter spread over too much bread, aren't you? And I found that to be true in my own life. And so we need to make sure that we're actually doing what the Lord has asked us to do, not just making sure that we're simply busy. See, we can just end up making rules in our lives saying, so long as I'm busy, God's good with that. 
But that's legalism, isn't it? I'll give you an example of this. See, oftentimes we can make generalizations because they're easier, aren't they? So long as I serve, then God's happy with that. But let me ask you this. Couldn't apply this to a real-life situation here. I think when it comes to Valentine's Day, there's normally certain expectations, aren't there? There's chocolates, roses, nice dinner, maybe something cute and stuff that's normally like pink or red, right? And we can make the generalization, especially for us guys, that that is what maybe our our wives or our girlfriends or our fiancés want, right? Now, ladies, is that always the case? (laughs) No. See, I can tell you if I did that, that's not actually what Becca would want, what my wife would want. Because here's the thing. She actually doesn't even really care for Valentine's Day in the first place. She doesn't like chocolate. She doesn't like roses or how they smell. She doesn't really care for stuffed animals and pink and red. So if I were to do that, it's not necessarily that those things are bad, but that's actually not who Becca is. You know what Becca would be really happy with? Is if I showed up one day spontaneously with a bouquet of sunflowers and a jar of pickles. (laughs) Right? But the only way that I can know that is if I take time to worship before I serve. And see, that's what Martha missed, is that she tried to serve before she worshiped. And we need to make sure that we worship before we serve. See, like I said, Jesus isn't condemning the fact that Martha's busy. In fact, what's so awesome is that likely Martha learns her lesson, and we later see in another chapter of John, that she's actually serving the Lord, but she doesn't complain about it. Because she is worshiping and then serving. And that's what we need to understand. Is that we need to worship before we serve. We need to make sure that we foster adoration for the Lord before we just get caught up in doing things because what happens is we might end up doing things that the Lord has never asked us. In fact, we might end up getting him roses and chocolates when he really wants sunflowers and pickles. That maybe we end up ministering to people that maybe the Lord actually hasn't called us to minister to and maybe we're supposed to be ministering to somebody else. And so we need to make sure that we're sitting at the Lord's feet before we serve him. And here's what happens, is that if we continue down that road, we continue to perform, we continue to serve before we worship, what ends up happening is that we then take that standard that we set for ourselves and we put it on everybody else. And isn't that what Martha does here? She takes the same standard that she's put on herself and then she throws it on Mary. And actually basically blaming Mary and really even more so blaming the Lord because, well, Lord, you're not doing anything about this. Why don't you make her get up and help me? And so what ends up happening is likewise, when we get caught up in performance, when we make it about being a perfectionist, then we end up putting that same standard on everybody else, not realizing that maybe everybody else are actually in different places than we are. That maybe what the Lord has already taught us, what he's already confirmed in our hearts, he maybe has not done that work in somebody else yet. And then what ends up happening is on top of that, we also become like Martha in the sense that we become proud and self-righteous. Well, I'm doing what's right. I'm serving. I'm over here preparing a meal. I'm trying to please you, Lord. And Martha's, or and Mary's sitting there doing nothing. See, Martha thinks that she's right because she's the one serving when the reality is, is that Mary's actually taken the better part, which is to worship. And then ultimately it leads to what we also see with Martha is that she becomes discontented. She starts looking at Mary, 
and what Mary is doing. And she goes like, well, I'm over here and I've got all this work that I've been slapped with. And then Mary is just sitting there doing nothing. We end up comparing ourselves to each other, to the people around us. And we become discontented. There's always something that could be better. There's always something that could be different. Nothing is ever good enough. Now that's the heart of performance. That's the heart of perfectionism. That's the heart of legalism. It's all about the rules. It's all about making sure that we perfect ourselves. But can I tell you, that's not the standard that Jesus set. And I find it so awesome that we were singing about grace because that's the standard that Jesus sets. He sets the standard of grace and worship. See, rather than us making the standard, he met the standard so we don't have to. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, by grace through, it's salvation is by grace through faith, is it not? And not of works lest anyone should boast. Or how about Hebrews ten fourteen? for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, Jesus meets the standard so we don't have to. So it's not about the standard we set for ourselves, it's about the, Jesus, or it's about the standard that Jesus sets for us. And that's the standard of grace. And then on top of that, he works out that perfection. He works out that salvation within us. Philippians 1.6 says that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That he completes it. It's not like Jesus said, it's finished. Well, at least my part. You guys still have a lot of work ahead of you. <laughs> no, he says it is finished, period. That he, when he starts the work... He does the work and he finishes the work. In fact, so much so that Paul, I love what Paul says in Galatians. Give me a second to get there. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? When did salvation ever become about works? When did worship ever become about works? It's always been about grace. It's always been about adoring the Lord. It's always been about sitting at his feet and understanding who he is. And what happens is, is as James so elegantly puts, he says, faith without works is dead, but he actually says, I will show you my faith by my works. See, works does not produce adoration. Adoration produces works. When you take time to adore the Lord, you take time to love the Lord and spend time with him, what happens is, is a direct result of that, if it's really genuine faith and worship, is that you're going to want to serve him. See, I, I, when, I, you know, when I'm doing chores sometimes at home, I don't do that so Becca will love me. I do that because I love Becca and I want to be a blessing to Becca. When maybe neither one of us wants to do the dishes and I opt to do the dishes, I'm not doing that because I'm afraid that she's going to leave me. I do that because I just want to be a blessing to her because I know maybe she really just doesn't want to do it because maybe they're just gross. And for me, being the guy, I'm okay with gross. So it's just, it just works out. And the same thing is also true with the Lord. We need to take time to adore him before we serve him. And if we really take time to adore him and develop that faith and that love for him, the works are going to come. So once again, he's not condemning the fact that Martha is busy and serving. It's just the problem is, is that she's got the order wrong. She's trying to do the service before the adoration when it needs to be the adoration before the service. Because as I said, service does not produce adoration. Adoration produces service. And actually, there's a theologian, and I love how he puts this. 
I think he really puts it elegantly. He says, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. Is that not true? When we get caught up in performance, when we get caught up in the rules and the regulations and the things that we have to do, it actually kills the heart of worship. Can I tell you, there is nothing that will snuff out worship in your life faster than legalism and getting caught up in the performance rather than the worship itself. And so that's why he's actually saying, Mary's picked the better part. She's, she's worshiping. She's spending time with me. She's learning to adore me. And then we later see that Mary actually then has the works on top of it. That she performs these wonderful services for the Lord, but it's because she has learned to worship first. See, that's the heart of grace. See, and unlike the performance, grace produces humility. Because then what happens is we realize that we can't earn it. You will never be able to earn God's love. You will never be able to earn God's approval. You will never be able to earn salvation. That's why we have Jesus. Because if we could do it, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. He could have just stayed up in heaven. (laughs) But see, we need Jesus because it wasn't something that we could earn. That's what grace is. It's God working in our lives despite our sin and our brokenness and our fallen state. So it makes us humble and it makes us righteous. It makes us understanding, gracious and kind rather than judgmental like Martha. Not only that, it makes us content with our current situation. That's why Paul actually says what he says. I've learned in all things to be content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to have nothing. I've learned how to have much. He says, I've learned in all things to just be content with where the Lord has me because his grace was sufficient for Paul. And that's what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace was sufficient. And what happens is we're prone to seeing God's goodness and love rather than what we lack. Because it's about grace. And it ultimately makes us secure in his love, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but when I make it about performance, when I make it about being perfect, and I make it about the rules, nothing makes me more insecure in God's love than that. Because then it becomes like, man, I, I'm not performing. I'm not, maybe I'm falling short and maybe I keep tripping up in the sin that I, I thought I had victory over. And it's like, man, does God really love me? Because I, I'm not performing to the standard that I've set. But when we make it about grace, aren't we secure in his love? Because then it's no longer about what we do. It's about whose we are. And once again, that same theologian, his name is Gerhardus Voss, and he writes this. He says, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. That Jesus has always loved us because it's a part of who he is. First John says it this way, that God is love, that it's a part of his nature. He didn't begin to love you. He's always loved you. And so why would he stop loving you? See, that's the heart of grace. Because it's not about who we are. It's about whose we are. It's about his grace and his love and his goodness being poured out on us. Oftentimes in spite of what we do, right? See, it's about grace. And what happens is, is grace produces worship. 
when we understand God's goodness and his love for us, and we understand why, how we were even saved in the first place, that produces worship, not works. Adoration before the service. But as I said, what oftentimes happens is that we can get so caught up in performance that it actually kills our worship. That it snuffs out our worship. And here's why that is. Because when it's about our performance and how we perform, that's exactly what happens. It becomes about you. Doesn't it? If you're so caught up in how you perform and how you're serving the Lord, what ends up happening is that the service and the performance becomes God rather than God himself. And as Jesus put it, he says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other or hate the one and love the other. So you can't serve two. You can either serve works or you can serve me, but you cannot serve both. And that's why performance snuffs it out. Because here's the thing, worship isn't about us and the things that we do for God. It's about God and who he is. That's the heart of worship. It's about God and what God's done for us, how he's met our needs when we were insufficient to meet them. Not about how we somehow got to God and finally made it. But it's about him. See, perfectionism, legalism, that that performance trap, it's all about us. It's self-dependent. It's self-perfection rather than God perfecting us. See, worship is God-dependent. It's his works. It's his, it's his performance. It's his character, his love for me, oftentimes in spite of my performance. And what happens is, is when we keep it that way, God remains preeminent, as Colossians says, that he would have the preeminence in all things. See, true adoration leads to excellence. Excellence won't lead to adoration. Excellence without adoration actually leads to resentment, which is what we see with Martha. See, when we buy into the performance-based relationship, leaves us striving for love, leaves us striving for God's affection, striving for our salvation, castigating ourselves when we fall short, leaving our relationship with God, as I said before, nothing more than an employee-employer relationship rather than the relationship of that of a father and son or a father and daughter. I mean, think about it. That's Realistically, that's not how parents treat their kids. Make sure that you perform, and if you perform, I'll love you. No. For, for those of you who are parents, I mean, you understand that you love your... I mean, oftentimes my dad told me this, that... I will always love you. You'll always be my son. Nothing's ever going to change that. And the same thing is true of God. We're always his kids. See, Jesus wants our adoration. He wants our worship. He wants our affection. He wants our love. He wants our hearts. You realize that's what he ultimately wants from you? He wants you not just a big mass of good works. Like, here's all the wonderful things that I did for you. He says, yeah, but I would have rather just spent time with you. And then what happens is, is rather than doing things for God, when we learn to adore him first, we end up doing things with God. Isn't there a big difference between those two things? 
when you get to do things with him rather than for him. I mean, that's the reality of it. When we do ministry, when we go on missions trips, we're doing things with God, not for God. That's his spirit working in us. See, he wants us, not just a big pile of works, not just our service. You know, and once again, that's not to say that we get out of not doing things for, you know, that we just don't have to do anything for the Lord. This is James said once again, faith without works is dead. Because here's the thing, if you really love, if you really adore the Lord, if you really have taken time to worship him, you're, you're going to serve him. I mean, it's just, it's just a result. You're going to want to do things for him, but what happens is, is it makes it an act of love rather than actions for love. See, he wants us. And actually what's interesting is that the Good Samaritan, the story that he tells briefly before this, actually further confirms just that. You realize that the Good Samaritan helps that Jewish man out of the goodness of his heart. It's not because he felt like, oh, well, I have to take care of him. No, it's a part of who he was. He wanted to take care of him because that was a part of his nature, to be kind and to take care of the people around him. And the same thing is true for us. God wants to change our hearts, not just what we do. He actually wants to change our nature, not just the things that we do. He doesn't want to just, well, okay, we'll just stop sinning. No, he actually wants to not only take away our sin, but he actually wants to completely change who we are. He wants to transform us. Not just kind of polish us up on the outside, but kind of leave everything on the inside the same. He actually wants us. So as I said, Jesus isn't calling Martha to stop serving. But he's saying, but you you miss the point. You miss the adoration. The service is great. The hospitality is great. In fact, honestly, I think that's one of the most wonderful things that we can do is be hospitable and loving and take care of other people's needs. But we need to make sure that we're sitting at the feet of Jesus first. That we're understanding his heart and his nature before we just go out and try to serve him. And so what's the takeaway from all of this? Out out of this whole story of Mary and Martha. First of all, obedience does not necessarily produce adoration. As I've said, adoration produces obedience. Genuine faith will produce works. Our service should be out of love, not for love. Now here's the thing, though, is that far too often I think people take this concept right here that, well, Mary just sat, and they kind of think that they can get out of actually letting the Lord change them. They get out of doing things for the Lord, and they just say, well, I can just do whatever I want because the Lord loves me, and I have his grace. And I want to issue you guys a strong warning. If that's you here tonight, and you think that you can justify your sin and just abuse the grace of God, once again, as James says, he says, faith without works is dead. That verse should scare you to death. Because what he's saying is that if you really have genuine saving faith, then works are going to be a result of that. But if you find that there's no change, there's no transformation, that there's no, there's no proof of your salvation, then I think you really need to ask yourself openly and honest if you're truly a child of God. Because if you're truly his child, he's going he's gonna to do that work in you. He's going to change your heart. There's going to be a result from that. And you know what? It might be slow. It might be small little increments, but it will be there. 
But on the flip side of that, maybe you're on the other side of it where it's all about the performance. It's all about making sure that you serve God, that you measure up to the standard, that you don't blow it in that area that maybe you keep falling into. Can I, can I just tell you, it's not about what you do, it's about whose you are. And so take hope in that, that God's doing a work in you. And honestly, if those things bother you, that's a good thing. That means that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And trust that he's working in you, because as I said before, the Bible says that it's him who completes the work in us. It's not us. But here's the part that we play, and I think far too often people can take this and be like, well, I just don't have to do anything, and God just kind of does all the work. We do have some responsibility in this. And just as it said with Mary, what does it say? She chose the better part. She is submitting herself to the Lord. See, God will do the work. God will change your heart. God will change your nature and bring about the change, but you have to submit yourself to him. You have to choose to let him do that. And we can either impede that process or we can accelerate it. It all just depends on how much we're willing to let him do. And so make sure that you're submitting to the Lord too. But don't bear the burden for all of those things. Don't bear the burden for your salvation. That's Jesus' job. That was what he did for us. And that leads me to the second takeaway. Salvation is given. It's not earned. Yes, we still have to receive it, but the Bible says it's a gift. Now let me ask you this. When you really receive a true gift, have you ever had to buy it back from that person? It's like, here, hey, I bought you this wonderful car. Oh, by the way, here's the payment. Like, that's not a gift. That's a, I mean, that's just... I mean, that's just something that you don't even want, right? It's like, oh, wait, I don't want a $400 payment. Like, it's like this, how is this a gift? This is actually hurting my budget. I can't even pay this. And that's the reality of it. Salvation isn't earned. It's given. We need to receive it, though. But it's something that is given to us. It's something that God did for us that we could never hope to do for ourselves. And when we try to make it about works and how we perform, what ends up happening is it actually cheapens what Christ did on the cross. Because we're effectively saying, God, what happened to you, Jesus, what happened to you on the cross, you dying for my sin wasn't sufficient. And so I'm going to keep working harder at it. That's effectively what we say when we do that. And so understand that your salvation is a gift. Third thing. Remember that God does the perfecting, not you. We're not perfecting ourselves. God does that work in us. As I already read from Galatians, he says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit that you're now being made perfect by the flesh? He says it starts as a work of the spirit, it continues as a work of the spirit, and it ends as a work of the spirit. It's God working in you. It's God changing your heart and your mind. You still have to submit to that change. I mean, like I said, we, we play a part in that. But he does the work. And it takes seeking him. It takes sitting at his feet, drinking from the word, putting God's word into our hearts and our minds and letting it change us. But he does the changing. He does the work. But we need to submit ourselves to him. Fourth thing? Four. (laughs) Fourth thing. It's okay to fail. It's okay to fall short. Now, hopefully it shouldn't end there. 
and we should get back up and continue. But it's okay to fail. God's grace is sufficient for our failures. For when we don't measure up, when we fall short, once again, that doesn't give us a right to simply just, well, well if I, it's okay to fail, then I'm just going to blow it all the time. <laughs> no, I mean, we should be doing our best to serve the Lord, but we should trust that when we fall short, when we don't measure up, when we're insufficient, that as Paul says in Second Corinthians, that his grace is sufficient for that. That's sufficient for our needs, for our failures. You know, one of the things that has been so freeing for me, especially in ministry, is realizing that God can minister without me. This is one of the most freeing things that I learned. God does not need me. He doesn't need me. I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, it, it, he could just have this pulpit teach you guys. He doesn't need me. But here's the thing is that he wants us. He wants us to be a part. He wants to use us. He wants us to be involved in what he's doing But the Bible says, honestly, the rocks and the trees could cry out. He is totally sufficient to the minister of the people around us. But he wants us to be a part. He wants us to be involved with what he's doing. Not only that, God is capable of overcoming our shortcomings and our failures. And he's capable of being sufficient to take care of our families our marriages, the ministries he's given us, our problems for our own salvation. He's sufficient for all of those things. We don't need, ooh, sorry. We don't need to be sufficient for those things. Now, we should be diligent in those things and give God our best. But ultimately, if he's not sufficient for those things, we should just give up. Because I can guarantee you're not sufficient. I'm not sufficient for those things. If God can't take care of my wife, um, I, I certainly can't do it. And so we need to let him be sufficient for those things. And so understand, it's, it, it's okay to fail. It's okay to not measure up. It's okay to fall short because, as Paul says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, I, I use the, the weak to put shame the strong. I use the foolish to confound the wise. It's not about being capable. It's not about performing. It's about God working in us and being sufficient about him performing oftentimes in spite of us. Because then what happens is is he gets the glory instead of us. And it becomes about his goodness rather than the cool things that we can do. So trust that he's sufficient. Remember that it's okay to fall short. Remember that it's okay to fail. Just make sure that you get back up and that you continue to serve him. You know, as my dad often says, we don't have to be sinless, but we should sin less, right? And that's the truth of it. We're, we're not going to be sinless. So long as we're here on this earth, we're, we're not going to be sinless. We're going to fall short. Just expect that. But continue to endeavor to walk with the Lord and to let him change those things in your life. And the very last thing, and this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at here with Martha. Learn to adore before you serve. Learn to sit at Jesus' feet before you go out and do things for him. Because what's going to happen is, is that's going to cause you to not take on things that he's not given you. I mean, like I said, there's, there's plenty of needs. I mean, we could be busy all day, every day, taking care of everybody else's needs, and we wouldn't even scratch the surface. But if we run in our lane and we take care of the things that God gives us for today, and we let other people run in their lanes and take care of the things that God's given them, 
then he's going to do a lot of ministry. And so take time to adore him before you serve him. Spend time with him. Read his word. Apply it to your life. Pray. Understand his goodness and his love. Don't just make it about works. So there's nothing wrong with serving and being busy for the Lord. But don't let your service to God become your God. Can I tell you, that's one of the things that I've had to wrestle with sometimes is that I can actually let ministry become my God. That I can start to make it about doing ministry rather than actually doing those things for the Lord. And so make sure that what you're doing is actually for the Lord. Not just because that's what you do. The heart behind what you do matters just as much as actually what you do, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. When you apologize for things, but you don't really know what you're apologizing for, does it ever mean anything? No. You have to know what you need to apologize for in order to apologize, don't you? Same thing is true with the Lord. We need to make sure that we understand who we're serving before we serve them. And so, let's learn to be worshipers before we become servants. Because if we learn to be a worshiper, if we learn to adore the Lord first, then we're going to serve him and we're actually going to serve him even better. So let's make sure that we are worshipers before we're neighbors, before we're ambassadors, before we're servants. Because that's the one thing that's needed. He's basically saying, if I have your heart, I can do everything else. I can take care of everything else. If I have your heart, I can change your nature. I can change why you do things. I can change what you do but I need your heart to do that. And ultimately, isn't that how we get saved? Is that he actually reaches our hearts and he gives us a new nature? So when did it ever become about works? So don't fall into the performance trap. Should we do things excellently unto the Lord? Yes. But let's make sure that we adore the Lord before we just get caught up in doing. Father, we just thank you for this evening. And God, I just pray that we would understand this because this is such a a freeing uh, calling. God, that when we learn to adore you, God, you do the change. You bring about worship in our lives. God, it's not about what we do. God, it's not about who we are. It's about whose we are. God, we, we already have your approval. You might not approve of our sin, but you approve of us, of who we are. God, you, you already love us. And we never forget that. God, it's not about what we do. But it's about the fact that you reached us. God, your word says that in this is love, that you first loved us. And so, God, would we worship you and then serve you. Not that the works would just be an outpouring of our love back to you, not a way that we earn your love. And so, God, we love you. We thank you for this evening. God, I just pray that you would free us to truly worship you and to truly serve you in the right way. God, not just to simply serve you because that's what we do. God, we give you this evening. We ask that you would speak to us. God, continue to work in our hearts long after we've left this place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.